The following audio is the recording of a sermon delivered at St. Rose Community Church. You can visit our website at strosecc.org. If you're with the, the kids' class, you guys are dismissed to go back to your classes. Now, if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the book of Proverbs chapter 1. That's where we'll begin. But that's not where we will stay this morning. Proverbs chapter 1, we'll read verse 8 here in just a moment. It feels strange, if I'm being honest with you, it feels strange to preach a sermon in a moment like this. But if there was ever a moment where we needed a sermon, perhaps this is it. I heard a pastor speak this week about caring for his congregation who hurt, and he said these words, and they stuck with me. He said, for those whom you love and serve in their darkest moments, they will need their best theology. It's not quaint sayings or cliches in Christian culture that gets you through a moment like this. It's God. It's a right fear of the Lord. It's a relating to God as He really is and believing what He's really said. We need theology this morning. We need to believe deeply the things that we say we believe in the light but then question in the dark. So let's turn to the Lord and pray that he would lead us to himself through the preaching of his word. Lord, I certainly do not have the strength in myself to make it through this sermon. I was struggling to make it through a song And so, God, we just come and we pray, even in this moment where your word is open before us, would you again, as I've seen you do time and time again, would you prove that your grace is sufficient and that your strength is made perfect, your power is made perfect in our weakness. God, visit us this morning through the preaching of your word and apply it to our shaky hearts that we might be placed on a rock. Lord, we love you. Help us to worship you through your word. And we pray all these things by your grace and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. We were supposed to begin Proverbs chapter 1 verse 8 this morning. In fact, I spent much of the day on Monday preparing studying, writing outlines for Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8 through 19. This outline was scheduled months ago while I was on my sabbatical. I was thinking through what we would preach and when we would preach it, and this particular text landed on this particular day, and I just want you to hear Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, and perhaps you'll see why we need to pivot and perhaps approach this text differently than I would have this morning. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8, reads this. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, 
and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head, and they are pendants for your neck. For several weeks, we've been studying the book of Proverbs, introducing ourselves to the book. Proverbs is a book about the wisdom of God. It's about wisdom, which enables us to live in God's world, God's way. And in verses 8 and 9, begin the body of the book. We've, all we've been doing is introduction thus far. The preamble is verses 1 through 7. Verse 8 is the first message of the book of Proverbs, which leads us into this wisdom book. And what it does is it introduces us to God's design for how wisdom is to be passed down to every generation, to every nation. Proverbs 1, 8 through 19, this was going to be a sermon about God, the family unit being God's idea, how it was and is God's idea to have families come together with fathers and mothers teaching their children the wisdom and the glory of God that God might be praised to the next generation and to every nation. Parents, according to Proverbs, are supposed to function like God-ordained representatives who teach their children the wisdom they are not born knowing. They're supposed to introduce their children to God and his word so that children grow up and then they wear their parents' wisdom like a graceful garland for their head and pendants around their neck. Verses 8 and 9 is about the way it's supposed to be. Walking wisely according to God's original design. But how in the world were we going to do a sermon on the fatherhood and motherhood and the rearing of children in a moment where one of our very own is suddenly stripped of the opportunity of growing up to adorn his parents' wisdom. How are we supposed to understand Proverbs 1, verses 8 and 9 in a world where no matter how well you teach your children, no matter how well you protect your children, they may not grow up to wear your instruction like a garment for the world to see. See, Proverbs is a book that articulates the way the world should work. But the book of Proverbs particularly does not account for the extreme brokenness of the world we live in. You see, if you come to Proverbs alone, and that's all you have of the knowledge of God and the knowledge of his world, if you read it in isolation, it'll create more questions than answers about pain and evil and suffering in the world, especially when endured by a righteous per person. It doesn't answer the question, uh, the, the conundrum of how a righteous person who chooses to live the wise life doesn't get the blessings in this moment that Proverbs promises. What about the moments in, in the real world where the wicked seem to prosper. The godless have babies like crazy. While the righteous endure unfathomable sorrows. Proverbs is a precious book. But we know that Proverbs is not an isolated work. It's one book 
and a big collections of books we call the Bible. And not only is Proverbs one book in the collection of books we call the Bible, it's more particularly one book in a collection of books the Hebrews knew as wisdom literature, wisdom books. There's a reason that the Hebrew Bible puts Proverbs, then Job next. The original design of the Hebrew Bible has Proverbs, then Job side by side. These books are meant to be read in companionship with one another, each book providing perspective on the other. What it's like to try to live wisely in God's world. While Proverbs provides the ideal picture of walking wisely and enjoying the benefits of such a walk, it's her sister book, the book of Job, that addresses the dilemma that we feel in the room. That even when you walk the path of wisdom, it does not guarantee you can avoid the sorrows of this world. We can't, ideal, we can't interpret the ideal ways of walking in wisdom in Proverbs if we do not dwell in the world of sorrow and suffering with Job in a world where children very often are lost before they have the chance to wear their parents' instruction for the world to see. Job teaches us several things this morning, and this is the first thing that it teaches us. Truth number one is this, godly wisdom does not guarantee a life without suffering. Last week we studied the true key to wisdom in Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7. If you want to be a wise person, if you want to live a life of God's blessing and walking according to his way, this is what it takes, Proverbs 1 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you want to, if you want to live the wise life, you need to know God as he really is. Not as the God as you make up, not as the God as you wish he would be, not as the God as you, as you cast upon him, making him look more like you than he really is, but the God as he's really revealed himself. If you want to live a wise life, you need to know God. To have a reverent fear of him and love for him. Last week we talked about how the fear of the Lord is this combination of awe and fear and obedience and love like a father who wields all of his authority for your good. Now meet Job in Job chapter 1 verse 1. Now, keep in mind, if you're reading straight through the Bible, you have just read Proverbs about all this wisdom about fearing the Lord. It ends, it, remember, Proverbs is sandwiched with fear of the Lord, fear of the Lord, and then all the way through, you see fear of the Lord, fear of the Lord, fear of the Lord. Job chapter 1, verse 1, listen to Job as he's introduced. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Job is introduced to us as a man who feared God in all the ways we discussed last week. In other words, he was a man of wisdom. He walked the path of life. He walked the path of God as portrayed in Proverbs. He lived in God's world, loving God's word, walking as God intended. Yet what we find in Job is a wise man, a faithful man, who endured unimaginable suffering. The book teaches us that 
that it is often the most wise among us, often the most faithful, often the most courageous for the mission of God who seem to bear the deepest sorrows. This is not only a Job thing, it's a constant confirmation of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, James, John the Baptist, John the Apostle, Stephen, Jesus himself, all tremendous disciples, tremendous, well, Jesus wasn't the disciple, he's the discipler, tremendous men of God who suffer despite their faithfulness, oftentimes because of their faithfulness. By making the right decision, Stephen is stoned. If he'd have made the wrong decision, he would have went, according to world standards, blessed. Read any missionary biography of a man or woman who has changed the world for the cause of Christ, and you will find that the fruit of their labor that changed the world was paved with tears of affliction. Adoniram Judson, the first missionary sent from American soil, poured out his life in the land of Burma. He buried seven of his 13 children and two of his beloved wives over the course of a nearly 40-year ministry. Judson wrote this about trusting God's sovereign plan. He said, if I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. Adoniram was a wise man. Job was a wise man. But wisdom and faithfulness do not guarantee a sorrowless life in this broken world on this side of eternity. Jesus promised us this. In this world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. After introducing Job in all of his wisdom, uh, the scene changes. The curtain of the heavenly throne room is pulled back and we see Satan, the evil one. Satan literally means the accuser approaching God with an accusation. Job chapter 1 verse 9, here's the accusation. Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Satan essentially challenges the genuineness of Job's faith. He argues that Job's faith is not miraculous. He argues that Job's faith is only transactional. Job gets what he wants from God. Therefore, he worships God. The true object of his worship is not God. The true object of his worship are all the things that God can give him. Change his circumstances and Job will turn on his God. He will not fear God rightly. Rather, he will hate God. He will look God in the face and he will curse God, revealing that it was never really God whom he loved. 
It's a challenge against Job's faith, and it's a challenge against the worthiness of Job's God. Job knows nothing of this accusation, knows nothing of this behind-the-curtain conversation. He only knows that very suddenly, with no explanation or warning, his faith, the genuineness of it, was tested. In one day, in one moment, Job's world changes. He loses his land, his livestock, his seven sons, and his three daughters in one massive disaster. It's a devastating loss beyond comprehension, and the heavenly hosts await to watch Job's response. Job chapter 1, verse 20. Then Job rose. He arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said... Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Truth number two, suffering exposes genuine faith in a glorious God. Church family, this is faith. Do not let the TV evangelist fool you with the kind of faith that Satan hopes you have. The strongest kind of faith is not the faith that gives money in order to convince God to give you what you want. The strongest kind of faith is not even the faith that believes God will heal and, and can heal. It's not the kind of faith that says, if I muster up enough belief, I can get God to do the thing that I so desperately want. I believe God heals. I believe God heals miraculously. I believe he does it often and in many ways. I believe we absolutely should pray for healing and we should do it fervently and persistently. I believe God ultimately heals every believer and every little child in Jesus, whether it's in this life or it's in the next. But the Bible's most astounding and most God-exalting displays of faith are not when the healing comes exactly as we've asked when we've asked it. The faith that is most astounding, the kind of faith that Satan wanted to debunk, to prove illegitimate, to show to the world... The faith that is most glorious is the kind of faith that gently sings, God is so good, while holding the hand of your child in intensive care. It's the faith that looks death and suffering and loss in the face and with trembling lips whispers, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's Job's response and it proved both the legitimacy of Job's faith, the miraculous nature of his faith, and the worthiness of Job's God. You see, Satan wanted the suffering of Job to both crush Job and make 
Job's God look less worthy of worship, and it had the exact opposite effect. His, his faith was strengthened, and his God was on display as more glorious. This is Job's testimony, but it's the clear testimony of the entire Bible. Our suffering for those who love God is not meaningless. It's doing something, whether we know it or, or not. This is why God prepared Austin on Monday with teaching this text to a group of Indonesians across the world. This is why God pressed these truths into his mind on Monday before Tuesday came. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kind. You know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is why Peter says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, what does it do? What does tested faith do? It might be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the kind of faith that we've witnessed this week. I'll tell you what I did not see at the children's hospital this week. I didn't see faith healers leading children out one by one. I didn't see wealthy preachers sitting with parents urging them to live their best lives now in this world. But I'll tell you what I did see. I saw members of St. Rose Community Church on their faces before God in a chapel, praying in solidarity the words of the Psalms of David, lifting their voices to God. See what I did see. I saw faith that trusts God, that believes that all things work together for good. A faith that says the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Every family member, every nurse, every doctor that came in contact with the situation this week witnessed a miracle. They saw a genuine miraculous, God-given faith that made God look glorious. Suffering exposes genuine faith in a glorious God. But see, Job, the story doesn't end in chapter 1. As it is with most trials, they are not quick. As it is with most tests, it's not a matter of initial reactions to the hardship. As it is with most seasons of darkness, the testing is longer than we think we can bear, and the seasons are as if the darkness will not lift. The book of Job is designed to take us on a journey with a sufferer. It's not a two-chapter book. It's a 42-chapter book for a reason. In fact, to read it is laborious. It is. You're, somebody hit it in their Bible reading plan, right? To read it, it is laborious. Though Job responds perfectly to this initial, immediate, unfathomable wave of sorrow, the waves don't stop. 
the billows keep rolling in the book. In chapter 2, though he has just suffered, suffered incredible emotional suffering, then compounded upon it, he begins to suffer physically. His body breaks out into loathsome sores, and he's suffering to such a degree that his own wife begins to question, why is it that you're believing in this God? In Job chapter 2, verse 9, his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Job, do what Satan wants you to do. Curse him to your face, to his face. And again, Job 2.10, he shows faith. You speak as one of the foolish women when you speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, again, a wonderful initial reaction but Job's suffering and sorrow doesn't end there. It only grows and shifts with time. Job's friends come to his side, but they prove not to be a great help. The best thing that they did in the entire book was to sit silently next to Job for seven days and grieve with him. That's the best thing they did in the entire book. They just sat quietly in his presence. It's when they started to talk that the problems came. They began to apply bad theology to Job's situation. They question Job's faithfulness. They believe that if Job had had enough faith, this wouldn't have happened. Surely he's in sin somehow. Surely he's failed to fear God rightly somehow. Let me just pause there and charge you. Don't be Job's friends. Don't provide words of either comfort or conviction if they're based on bad theology. In fact, if you're not sure what to say, don't say anything. You can be present, you can express love and grief, but don't say the wrong things just because you think it'll make someone feel better. Just be present. For 38 chapters, we're tossed to and fro between the bad counsel of good-intentioned friends. We're taken in and out and up and down an emotional roller coaster of Job's grief. We're confronted by unanswered questions that plague Job's soul. His initial reaction is good, but the continual onslaught of grief day after day when he wakes up and realizes that wasn't a dream. When he, when he wakes up and he realizes that none of his children are going to come into the home. Those, those questions begin to mount in his mind, and they're questions that should be familiar to anyone who suffered. Let me just give you a sampling of some. What did I do wrong? Job chapter 6, verse 30. Is there any injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern the cause of this calamity? Or, God, why are you doing this? Job 10, verses 1 through 2. I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I'll speak in the bitterness of my soul. I'll say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Why are you doing this? Or how about this one? God, where are you? Job 23, verse 1, verse 2. Today... 
also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my cause before him, and I would fill my mouth with arguments. Have you ever wanted to just have an argument with God over why this isn't the best course of action? How, oh, God, you would get more glory. Lord, I'm interested in your glory. You'd get more glory if you'd heal right now. Don't you understand, Lord? Or God, if I'm, I'm in the wrong, just show me. Job 31, verse 3. Is not calamity for the unrighteous, disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does, does not he see my ways? Doesn't he number all my steps? If I've walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened deceit, let me be weighed in the just balance. Let God know my integrity. Perhaps you have been there, or perhaps you have been there this week, or perhaps you are there right now when suffering comes the types of questions that you're plagued with are the why questions. God, why is this happening? Why would you allow it? Why would you ordain it? Why would you plan it? Nothing about this makes sense. So Job does the natural thing. He asks why over and over again. And in all 42 chapters of this book, written particularly for this purpose of processing suffering, God never gives Job the why answer. God, rather, directs Job to the only answer, to the only question that will actually heal a broken heart. In God's way, he doesn't answer us when we're asking the wrong questions. Rather, he shapes us to be the kind of people who ask the right questions. He shapes us to be the kind of people who ask the right questions. God doesn't answer the why questions, but he begins to answer the who question that Job is not necessarily asking. If Job wants any consolation, any comfort at all, he has to meditate on the who question. Who is the God? who stands above this situation and with us in this situation. Truth number three, suffering leads you to God. After all of Job's questions, God finally speaks. And he begins with his own set of questions that go on for four chapters. God asks if Job understood how the world was created or if he was present when God fashioned all things in the beginning. Job chapter 38 verse 1, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man and I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me. If you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or, or who stretched the line upon it? God asked Job if Job understands how the weather patterns work. Or if he has the power to, to make it rain or not. Job 38 verse 34. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of water may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are. Job, God asked Job if, if he was 
if there's anything that God has ever been given that God didn't already have. Job 41, 11, who's first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Beyond these questions, God points to the mysteries of created animals and how they're provided for in the day-by-day seasons of the earth and how they keep rolling on under God's sovereign hand. God sufficiently demonstrates to Job over the course of four chapters that there are an infinite number of questions that God knows the answer to that Job cannot answer. There are an infinite number of questions that God alone is the one who can answer. So many things Job doesn't know. The important thing for Job is that he trusts the God who does know and who runs the universe justly. Job wanted answers. God wanted Job to want God, to grow in his fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of all knowledge. You see, Job was a wise man. He could be described as a man who rightly feared the Lord in Job chapter 1. But the Job of chapter 42 is not the same Job as the Job of chapter 1. His fear of the Lord has been expanded, heightened, deepened to, to places that he did not know faith could exist. After so much suffering, after so many unanswered questions, listen to Job's conclusion in Job 42, verse 1. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who's this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know here, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Job thought he was a man of faith. But you see, it was through the fire and tribulation and suffering that his faith was proved genuine and strengthened beyond his wildest expectations. He says, I thought I knew you, but now I see you. Job's suffering was doing something in Job. And it was doing something through Job. Suffering has a way of bringing us to the end of ourselves. You see, without suffering, we go on living in our world under the illusion that we are in control. There was no step that could have been taken this week to preserve Gabe's life. There was no mistake made. There was no lack of oversight. There was no failure. Much of our control over our lives, over our children, over all things are an illusion. We feel that we are more like God than we really are. We may think we know God, we may think we trust God, but it's often through the school of suffering where we learn consciously to depend 
on God who runs the universe to be our shepherd, our comforter, our protector, our Lord, our governor, our, our one who establishes every single step. The purposes that God was working in the midst of Job's suffering went so far beyond his ability to see behind the heaven's uh, curtain to the throne room. I wonder if Job could have possibly fathomed that his suffering would lead to his words being written down on paper, preserved, memorized, and quoted for the encouragement of broken-hearted parents in a children's hospital thousands of years later. That God might actually be using the suffering of Job for the suffering of these people in this room who he never knew would ever be created. The purposes of God's sovereignty go far beyond any of our expectations. To see into the purposes of God for our suffering would be like seeing into God's creation of the universe out of nothing. It is beyond us to consider an eternal God who creates a universe by the word of his mouth out of nothingness. His sovereign will is beyond us. And our why questions may not be answered on this side of eternity, but faith is the ability to trust the who of our circumstances, whatever they may be. It's, it's the ability to sing, right? Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, ruler of all. Job had a big vision of a sovereign God to sustain him, but brothers and sisters in Christ... We have more than Job had. We have what Job only foreshadowed. In one of his bad speeches to Job, his friend processes through Job's grief, and he observes that in his experience, innocent people don't suffer. Surely Job must have done something wrong to bring about this suffering. It's, and it's true. Job's suffering was not a direct result of any wrong that he had done, but it's also true that Job is not a completely innocent per person. Those people don't exist. No one who suffers is completely innocent. We have to remember what the Bible says very clearly. None of us is totally and completely innocent before a holy God. None of us deserves to live a life totally free from heartache or suffering. None of us have loved God so well been so obedient, been so faithful that we can earn for ourselves a sorrow-free existence no more than we can earn ourselves a place in heaven. We're all sinners living in a sin-stricken world and we're never innocent sufferers. Our hope is never on whether we are innocent or not because we are never truly innocent no matter how hard we try, but our hope is in the only person who ever suffered as a truly innocent person. Job feared the Lord, was a righteous man, but he wasn't a perfect man. His life pointed forward to the only truly righteous sufferer. The only man who would suffer as an innocent man, not against his will, but according to his will. Not according to a plan he wished wasn't happening, but to a plan he designed. Job trusted God because of who God was, what God said he would do. We trust God because of what God has done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We look back to a God who willingly subjected himself to suffering on our behalf. And that's our final truth this morning. Our suffering is temporary because... Jesus suffered for us. Christians, we grieve differently than the rest of the world. 
Because we know that our grieving has a time limit. We know that our suffering has an expiration date. We know this because Jesus suffered and died as the only truly innocent person in the world, and he did so in our place. He took on himself the curse of the world, the brokenness of the world, the sin of the world, the guilt of the world, the shame of the world, the sorrow of the world, the grief of the world. He took on himself what our sin deserved so that one day sinners like you and me would never have to suffer again. Jesus endured far more than Job could have ever imagined, and he did so in love for you. He was an innocent person, and he died as a guilty person so that guilty persons like you and me might step into the presence of God as innocent persons. And he rose again on the third day, signaling that he alone could make good on these promises. That, that death will not hold you and will not hold Gabe. That suffering will not be the end of our story. That sorrow will turn to joy. That tears will be turned to singing. All because for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Brothers, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, that you may grieve as others do who don't have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, with the trumpet sound, trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Because of these promises in our deepest sorrows and darkest nights, they don't compare to the glory that we cling to. 2 Corinthians 4, we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. For the things that are unseen are eternal. Our suffering is temporary because Jesus suffered for us. We may never know uh, the reasons that God allowed this particular depth of sorrow to befall this beloved family in this moment in history. But there's a chance that at least one of the things God is doing is bringing you in this room to contemplate where you stand before this holy God and whether you have the miraculous faith in Jesus as your Lord that has been displayed in a hospital room this week, day in and day out. We have hope in the midst of suffering only because we have a very real active relationship with God through our faith in Jesus. This kind of suffering is endured with joy only because of the miracle of the Holy Spirit that God gives, only to those who repent of their sins and trust Jesus, not as just a good idea, not as just a maybe there's a good God so I'll try to good li live a good life, but to Jesus as Lord over all things, even Lord over my son and daughter's life. That's, that's saving faith. That's not a, I don't want to 
go to hell, raise my hand, get a card, go on to live my life. No, no, that's a faith that trusts Christ as Lord. Do you have that kind of faith? Might it be that God's using this, the events of this week to eternally save people in this room? Perhaps Gabe's miracle life will play a part in God's work in your life to draw you to God for maybe the first time or perhaps the thousandth time. Whatever the case, we join together to look to God. I'll close with this. Austin quoted this hymn while teaching his Bible study on Monday to a group of Indonesians over Zoom. He quoted this after teaching James 1. This is what this hymn says. It says, My father's way may twist and turn. My heart may throb and ache, but in my soul I'm glad I know he maketh no mistake. My cherished plans may go astray. My hopes may fade away, but still I'll trust my Lord to lead, for he doth know the way. Though night be dark and it may seem that day will never break, I'll pin my faith, my all in him. He maketh no mistake. There's so much now I cannot see. My eyesight's far too dim. But come what may, I simply trust and I'll leave it all to him. For by and by, the mist will lift. And plain it all he will make. Through all the way, though dark to me, he made not one mistake. May that, may that be the cry of our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to take this time to sing it is well with our souls because of the promises of Christ. And then we want to take the time to just behold you to draw near to you. And God, I just want to personally, just want to thank you for, for increasing my faith this week, for working in my own heart, Father. I, if anyone ever doubted your power, the work of your spirit, the reality of your promises for believers, they haven't been in the rooms I've been in this week. Lord, I've seen you work miracles. And so, Lord, I, I praise you for that, God. I praise you that on Sunday night, when none of us knew that we would be here on this Sunday morning, that you just sovereignly worked where on Sunday night we had a time of prayer specifically for the DeArmond family. Our whole church laid hands on the DeArmond family on Sunday night for the ministry that, that they are taking up, a newer ministry in our church. And we prayed for blessing and strength and, and for your presence and for you to give them wisdom, having no clue that Tuesday was coming. Austin taught James 1, having no clue that Tuesday was coming. But God, you are sovereign and you are good and you have made yourself so evident. And so we, we just want to take time corporately as a church. We've lamented this morning. Lord, we have... We have sat in our grief, and that's good. And God, we pray now, turn our eyes to you. And give us a spirit of thanksgiving, even in the midst of brokenness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.